Hello, community. It is so, so good to be with you. Uh, the other day, I was working out of the cafe at our Naperville Yellow Box location. When an older guy walked into the building, uh, the guy looked kind of lost, so I asked him, can I help you? Well, he recognized me as the lead pastor, and for like the next five minutes, he proceeded to tell me how much he loved community. He loved the people. I mean, he loved you all. He loved being a part of his small group, which is actually a grief support group for those dealing with loss. And he talked about how much he loved being a part of our Christmas gift mart last year. Well, after all the compliments, he extended his hand and he showed me what he was holding. And he was holding this program from a funeral that had the picture of a young fireman right on the front. And I asked, uh, well, well, who's that? And then he told me, he said, that's my son. The, the conversation got very somber. The man looked at me and said, uh, I'm really trying to find my way back to God. And I could see this father choking back tears. And then he continued, he said, there's so many people in this world who are not nice people, even evil people. So why would God allow my son to be taken? Why? Let me ask you, how would you have responded? Because there's not an easy answer. In moments like these, we feel the kind of tug of war between faith and doubt. On the one hand, we want to have faith. We want to believe that God is here and that he's in control and that he is good. But as much as we want to have faith, it's then that doubt often pulls our hearts and our minds in what feels like an opposite direction. And we find ourselves asking, why? And there's a very real tension between faith and doubt. And in this tension, I think most of us, we really want, we want faith to win. But in life, we often, so often, just feel the pull of doubt. So the question is, what do we do when we're being pulled in both directions? The truth is the tension between faith and doubt, it's always been there. Now we like to romanticize Bible times and we think, you know, if I were alive when Jesus was alive, if I could see him with my own eyes, then there wouldn't be any of this tension. I'd be full of faith. But that's just not the case. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus' followers, they had lots of reasons for faith. In fact, Mark in the gospel, he tells us a story of three of Jesus' closest friends, Peter, James, and John, who have this incredible faith-building experience. He writes in Mark 9, he says, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led him up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there, Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes become dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them, Elijah and Moses, who are talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. So Peter's kind of like Captain Obvious. This incredible supernatural thing is happening right before their eyes. They get to see Jesus, but not only Jesus, also Elijah and Moses all at once. And Peter just kind of blurts it out. It is good to be here. And it is good to be on the mountaintop of faith. We all love the mountaintop experiences, don't we? Maybe it's that moment you 
come up out of the water after being baptized. And all your friends and all your family, they're there to affirm you and applaud your commitment. And it's good to be on the mountaintop. Or maybe it was that experience you had at summer camp with hundreds of other students who are motivated and excited about living for Jesus. I mean, it's good to be on the mountaintop. Of course, that moment when the White Sox won the World Series. Ah, Hold it, that hasn't happened since 2005. But if it did, it would be good. (laughs) It's good to be on the mountaintop. Here's what happens. We're on the mountaintop celebrating all that God is doing in our lives. We feel like Peter. We just kind of want to shout out, it's good to be here. And in these moments, I mean, God is real. Faith is reasonable. And it all makes sense. But you know what? It's not just mountaintop experiences that give us reasons to have faith. There are lots of other good, solid reasons for faith. Take science, for example. There's often a sense that science or scientists are set against God or against Christianity. However, that's simply just not the case. Many of the greatest scientists, both now and in the past, have studied the universe closely and have concluded that faith in God is not only valid, but necessary. Let me give you a quick example. Consider astronomer and physicist Robert Jastrow. Some of you are familiar with his name. Uh, He's the guy who founded NASA's Goddard Institute of Space Studies. Here's what he says. Astronomers now find they have painted themselves into a corner because they've proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth. And they have found that all this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover. That there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. Or then, there's Albert Einstein, maybe the greatest scientific mind of all time. He said, the more I study science, the more I believe in God. The point is that rather than science being against faith, science actually encourages us to grab hold of faith. Many serious scientists who've studied the facts of the universe, its order, its fine-tuning, its intricate design, is led to conclude that there must be a God who created it all. And it's not just science. It's not just science that tells us to have faith. I mean, history also tells us to have faith. Most historians agree that Jesus of Nazareth lived, performed miracles, and was crucified on a cross. For example, historian Bart Ehrman, who's a critic of Christianity, he even says, I don't think there's any serious historian who doubts the existence of Jesus. We have more evidence for Jesus than than we have for almost anybody from his time period. Or A.E. Harvey, an Oxford scholar, he put it like this. The following is beyond reasonable doubt from everyone's point of view, that Jesus was known in both Galilee and Jerusalem, that he was a teacher, that he carried out cures of various illnesses, particularly demon possessions, and that these were widely regarded as miraculous that he was involved in controversy with fellow Jews over questions of the law of Moses, and that he was crucified in the, go- in the governorship of Pontius Pilate. I find that so interesting. I mean, historians, when pressed on the question, they'll tell you all the evidence suggests that Jesus did in fact live, he did teach, he did perform miracles, and he did die on the cross, just like the Bible describes it. So whether it's science or history or your own personal experience, The point is there are lots of reasons to to have faith. And when we hear rational 
evidence like that, we feel the tug of war moving decidedly in the direction of faith. Most of us want faith to win, and we know faith is good. But we all know there are times in life when we're not on the mountaintop. And maybe you've spent some time in the valley, even recently, and you have doubt. You feel the pull of doubt. Something happened in your life that's shaken your soul and you struggle to have faith. Uh, Just recently, I went to the funeral of a young mom who passed away quickly and unexpectedly. She left behind three beautiful kids. And I'll tell you, it was so very, very hard. All funerals are hard, but in some ways, these are the worst kind of funerals. Uh, There's so much shock. There's so many lingering questions. I call the questions the what ifs. What if, what if they'd caught it earlier? What if she could have known how long she had? Or everybody asks, what if I could have done something different? And that's how doubt works. Often unexpected suffering, it rattles our faith and stirs our anxieties. And we feel the pull of the what ifs and we gravitate towards doubt. And doubt starts to win the tug of war. We see this kind of struggle between faith and doubt play out in one of my favorite moments in Mark's gospel. In fact, it actually directly follows the mountaintop story that we just read. So Jesus' disciples, they come down from the mountain and they're met with the commotion of a crowd. And at the center of that crowd is a man who's desperate to get help for his son. The father explains to Jesus what he needs. He says, teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams in the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. This father had apparently believed that Jesus and his disciples could do something about his son's situation, but it hadn't worked. He had faith, but his experiences had begun to pull him toward doubt. Jesus responds with lament. You unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How, how, how shall I put up with you? Bring, bring the boy to me. I'll tell you, I, I've always thought this statement sounded a little jarring, like Jesus might just be kind of saying, I can't believe I have to put up with you guys. However, after studying it a little more, I think it's more like Jesus is saying, I don't have that much time left with you for you guys to get this. I need you to get this. I mean, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, this anxiety that you're feeling, the questions, the what ifs, they're not gonna go away. And you're not gonna always have me with you like you do right now. Well, the father brings the son to Jesus and Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, Take pity on us and help us. Did you catch the little word in there from the father? The father says, if, if you can. He's not sure. I mean, nothing's worked so far. He's at the end of his rope. Nobody, nobody's been able to help his boy. And also notice the father asked Jesus to have pity. The word pity comes from the Greek word uh, splonknen, 
Splunklin actually means guts or bowels. And I'll tell you what, just everybody, wherever you are, say that after me. I want you to get this Splunklin. Right, it even kind of sounds like guts or bowels, doesn't it? Splunklin. Well, here in this context, it means actually to have compassion. And it's interesting that the word for guts is associated with compassion. I mean, think of it this way. Have, have you ever traveled to a country with extreme poverty? For me, I'm thinking of my first trip to Haiti several years ago. I saw kids with no clothes or barely any clothes, homes built out of cardboard. I mean, real, real poverty. And I not only saw it, but I felt it. And guess where I felt it? Like in my gut, my splunkman. That's where you feel compassion. And, and this father says to Jesus, feel my pain. Feel it in your gut. Because I got a knot in my stomach that won't go away. I'm desperate. If you can help. The what ifs haven't gone away. And Jesus recognizes the father's struggling with doubt responds, if, if you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. And Jesus presses him on that little word, if. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I love that line from the father. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I mean, do you feel right there the tug of war? I mean, he kind of believes, but he, but he kind of doesn't. Have you ever been there? Maybe even right now. I know I felt that way. I think I felt that way every decade at some point of my adult life. And you know where you feel it? It's like in your gut. So what do we do in these moments? Well, here's the most important idea I want you to grasp today. When it comes to the tension between faith and doubt, the most important word is and. And. If you find yourself struggling in the tension of faith and doubt, if you find yourself echoing the words of that distraught father, I, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. I want to encourage you today, the most important word is and. Faith and doubt can coexist. They do coexist, almost in all of us, almost always. See, your doubts, they're not the enemy of your faith. Your, your doubts can actually lead to a deeper, greater faith. And let me say that again so you don't miss it. Your doubts, if you pursue them, can actually lead you to a deeper and greater faith. But as some of you know, doubts can also, I mean, they can make you feel paralyzed, afraid, or stuck. So how do we live in this tension between faith and doubt? Well, our teaching team's been talking about how to live in the tension of faith and doubt. And what I wanna do is I'm gonna turn it over to a teaching pastor at your location who's gonna share with you some very specific next steps that I want you to take. Well, I think as we wrestle with this tug of war, this question about faith and doubt. Uh, I've just been sitting this last week really thinking, what does it mean for life here in the city? What does it feel like to hold on to this tension between faith and doubt? And I have to say, I don't know if this is just me. I don't think it will be. But as I've been thinking about this question, I can't help but think it feels harder today 
to hold on to that tension than it did maybe even 10 years ago. Like, I know I'm not that old, but even 10 years ago, it felt like it was easier to be a Christian in some ways, culturally. It was easier to just kind of hold on to that tension than some of the challenges that feel like they just assault the Christian faith today, particularly when you live in the pressure-packed ecosystem that is the city. I was doing a little bit of digging on this, actually, and sociologists would agree that if you read the sociologists right now, they're talking about a religious revolution happening in the United States that is unprecedented. And what it's really around, what it involves, is the drop in people who identify as Christians. In fact, the most recent study I read from 2021 was that as of 10 years ago, 75% of Americans identified as a Christian. Now, in 2021, only 63% of Americans identify as Christians. That's a 12 percentage point drop. That is millions of people who no longer identify. And what happened, the shift that's been occurring, is that people who did identify as a Christian now have shifted over to this category that sociologists call the religious nuns. Have, ever, have any of you ever heard about the religious nuns? So the question if, uh, that you are asked by a sociologist is, how would you identify your religious beliefs? And you have uh, Catholic, uh, Protestant, Evangelical, Orthodox, Mormon, other categories. But there at the very end, there's this category that simply says none. I have no identification with my religious belief. And as early as 1991, so around the time I was born, we had only 5% of Americans responding that they would have no religious identification. But now, in 2021, that number has risen to almost 30% of Americans, three out of 10, who say they have no religious identification. This number is so shocking because it means that there is now a majority of people in the United States. There's actually no other large group. Uh, that, that number, 30%, is larger than Catholic, larger than Protestant, larger than evangelical, that now say nothing. I have no religious identification. In fact, here in 2021, uh, for my age demographic, the millennials, which I know many of us are here in this room, that number has risen to 40 40% of millennials say they have no religious identification. So what that means is that in the last decade or two, people, as they've been holding on to this tension, this pull between faith and doubt, people have been letting go of faith, and doubt has simply been pulling them along. In fact, there's a word, you have perhaps heard this word, I just want to say this word, it doesn't always get said in church, but there's a word that's called deconstruction. Anyone here wrestle with deconstruction? Hear the word deconstruction. Deconstruction is the great Twitter identification if you want to uh, stand out for having pulled your faith apart. Uh, deconstruction is the term that's used when anyone is going through a serious period of doubt. And here's, here's what I want to say about deconstruction. Deconstruction is not actually a bad thing. Deconstruction is a tool. In fact, uh, the term deconstruction, which often has been associated with the evangelical faith, the term comes from this philosopher by the name of Jacques Derrida, who really mastered the art of doubt. If you've ever read Jacques Derrida, Derrida's whole thing was doubting the meaning of words, and he would press you to say, well, how do you 
How do you know the meaning of words? And, and when you start spiraling down that question, doubting the meaning of words really leads to doubting communication itself. Like if we don't have words that have meaning, it's kind of hard for us to communicate. And if we doubt communication, well, then it's really hard to, to know anything, isn't it? And so as you start spiraling down deconstruction, what you arrive at is really just sort of nothingness and chaos. <laughs> and that, that in and of itself is a tool that has and continues to be very useful. Doubt presses against certainty. Doubt examines and explores that which needs to be tested. But if you were to ask Jacques Derrida about deconstruction, the interesting thing that Derrida himself would say is that deconstruction is itself not a destination. You, you cannot arrive at deconstruction. You can only keep deconstructing. And so there's this image that Derrida would use over and over again when he would talk about deconstruction, and that image was of a desert. A desert. Deconstruction is this place in which nothing can really grow because you've, you've bulldozed the ground, you've pulled up all of the roots, you've examined, and you've explored. And yet Derrida, kind of reflecting on the nature of religion to deconstruct, said, I feel sorry for those who find themselves in the desert and think that's meant to be their home. And so this morning, if you yourself have been deconstructing, I want to tell you that it is okay. Actually, deconstruction is not the enemy. Deconstruction is nothing to be afraid of. The Christian faith can and will endure deconstruction. But my deeper longing for you is that if you find yourself here in the desert of doubt this morning, just sort of overwhelmed by this tug on the rope that's been happening culturally, where it feels like friends have been deconstructing, where it feels like family members have been deconstructing, where it maybe feels like you yourself have been deconstructing. There's really three steps, three practical steps that I want to encourage you with this morning to take a step out of that desert to, when the time is right, leave the desert behind so that you can actually find a habitable home for faith that is necessary for any life to grow. So the three steps are simply this. First, I want you to know that it is okay for you to express your doubts. I think this is one of the great gifts of the cultural shift away from religion being just sort of commonly held and accepted, and now so many of us here in this category of religious nuns, it's okay to doubt. You're not crazy for doubting. Faith is hard, right? That story from Jesus of the man who says, help me overcome my unbelief. Doubting is okay. In fact, maybe you need to doubt some of the pieces of faith you were handed as a child. Maybe you need to doubt some of the religious structures and institutions that have caused harm or that are causing harm. Maybe you need to doubt in order to discover answers to questions you've never really wrestled with before. So my first invitation here in this community at Community Lincoln Park is that we want to hold your doubts with you. We want to hear your doubts. But second, if you find yourself here in this desert, where the bulldozer has cleared away and you're not sure what else is going to grow. My longing for you, we've already shared this morning, is that you would join a community, that you would find a group of friends to wrestle through your doubts with. Uh, it, there's this beautiful image I'm 
very excited this week. Uh, the Lord of the Rings TV show on Amazon is coming out. I know that was a hard pivot. I apologize. Uh, but in the Lord of the Rings, one of the most beautiful images is that of Frodo, this small, humble hobbit who finds himself holding this ring of power. It's this immense burden of responsibility. In fact, it's far too much for Frodo to bear. And so what J.R.R. Tolkien does quite beautifully and poetically. It's one of the reasons why the Lord of the Rings has been so powerful as this myth that sweeps us into it, is that Frodo finds he needs a fellowship. He needs a band around him to hold with him this incredible burden, to help support him as he navigates the challenges that are going to come. So for you, my encouragement is, especially if you are here or if someone you love is here, in this desert. Find a fellowship, find a community, particularly here in the city, that you can walk with in order to hold on to faith once more. Finally, I just want to encourage you that if you find yourself here in this desert, that there is one who can and will come after you here, and that is Jesus. Jesus is not intimidated by the wilderness. In fact, I've been thinking all week about this story of Jesus who goes intentionally into the wilderness. He goes into the desert so that he can face his doubts. You find as Jesus faces these doubts that he overcomes his doubts by facing into the trust he has in his heavenly Father. Jesus knows what it's like to live here in the desert, and yet Jesus also wants to invite you out of the desert. One of my other favorite stories in the gospel is of this man named Thomas who finds himself after Jesus' death deconstructing. He's pressed against the overwhelming doubts that he has been holding. Uh, he's overwhelmed emotionally. He's distraught by the suffering that has been around him. He has these questions he doesn't have answers to. And Thomas throws a very large obstacle in front of these other disciples, he says, if you can't prove it to me, if you can't prove to me that Jesus is alive, I am never going to believe. And what I love in this story is that Jesus appears to Thomas. And rather than dismissing Thomas's deconstruction, rather than dismissing Thomas's doubts, what does Jesus do? He shows him his hands that have been pierced. He shows Thomas his side. I mean, this is the heart of Jesus for every one of you. Jesus wants to show you where he was pierced for you. Jesus wants to show you where he bled for you so that you could come home to this family of God. And yet, as Jesus is responding to Thomas, he says, go ahead and feel the wounds in my hand. Go ahead and feel my side. And yet, Thomas, it is better. It is better for he who has not seen to still believe. I think Jesus, even this morning, is offering every one of us his hand. And if you found yourself here in the desert, at some point, my encouragement to you is to take Jesus' hand and begin to follow his leading. I mean, is there anyone else that you want to trust? Is there anyone else who you should trust to lead you out 
of the desert of deconstruction than Jesus. Uh, there's a simple prayer even now. I'm going to have you go ahead and just close your eyes for a minute. You can stay right in your chair. A simple prayer says, Jesus, if you are real, make yourself real to me. Let me say that again. Jesus, if you are real, make yourself real to me. Jesus is not afraid of your doubts. Jesus is not intimidated by the desert of your deconstruction. Instead, he wants to come to you. He will show himself to you if you ask him. Jesus, if you are real, make yourself real to me. Let's go ahead and continue now in worship.